You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, Growing up, I lived a fairly comfortable life. I didn't have a ton of hardship. I had two parents who loved and supported me. I had extended family who did the same. I was relatively successful in things like sports and school. All of those like stereotypical childhood joys existed for me. But all of that changed rapidly. One day, my junior year of high school, uh, my family was struck by tragedy when my 54-year-old father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. It's one of the most dangerous and fastest moving cancers that we know of in the human body. It was brutal for us. And I still remember the day uh, that we got the diagnosis. My dad was laying in a hospital bed. He had the gown on. He'd only been having symptoms for a couple weeks, so there wasn't a whole lot that we knew or knew to do when he was feeling sick. My mom, my brother, and I were in the hospital room, and I just remember being silent for a long time. I wasn't really sure what to do. I hadn't really encountered feelings like I was feeling. And so eventually I stood up, I walked out of the room, and I I paced up and down the hallway in the hospital, thinking maybe I'd find my emotions there somewhere. And after a little while, I I hadn't found them. And so eventually I just stood next to the hospital wall, faced down, had my hands on the railing. And after a few moments, I just lifted my leg and kicked the wall as hard as I could. Out of anger, out of despair, out of grief, out of all these emotions that I didn't really fully grasp at the time, I lashed out. And I'd like to tell you that I kicked a hole in the wall. I'd like to tell you that I was strong enough. I didn't. (laughs) I just was left with a throbbing foot afterward as a reminder. But I didn't know what else to do with that. And as painful as that story is, and as painful as that is for me in my life, I know every single person in this room has their own kicking the wall sort of story. You guys have been through pain and suffering in ways that I can't even begin to understand. It's a universal thing that we go through. And our world doesn't really know what to do with it. We don't know how to respond, so we try to explain it away. We try to turn it into a good thing. We try to avoid it, right? We come up with little phrases that we think will help solve it that actually often don't really do a whole lot and sometimes make it worse. Things like every cloud has a silver lining, right? Cool. The cloud's still there, though, right? Like... The silver lining is just the edge of the cloud. The pain is still there. That doesn't do anything for me. Everything happens for a reason. That sounds wise on the front end, but what it really is doing is pushing the emotion away and not engaging it, right? It's saying, oh, hey, this pain and suffering, there's going to be a reason. You'll figure it out later. Just just keep moving on. And it puts distance between us and the person suffering. Christians do this too. When we lose somebody, we say, God gained another angel. First of all, that's bad theology, like just a a blanket expression. It's a bad uh, understanding of what scripture says about what it means to be human. But more than that, it's trying to turn the suffering, which is not a good thing, into a good thing, right? It's trying to say, oh, no, it's all good in the end. It doesn't engage the pain that we're really feeling in the moment. Our artistic expression doesn't often do this well either. You guys, many of you know the Christian radio station here in Phoenix, Kayla, their slogan, positive, encouraging Kayla. As if that's the umbrella under which all of our Christian artistic expression should live. We don't have language for it. We don't know how to describe it. That's true in the church and that's true in our world. Good vibes only, y'all. 
That is a slogan of 2021. And yet suffering is universal. We all feel it. And so we're left oftentimes in the middle of our pain wondering, what do I do with this? Because the world's not helping us. What do I do with this? And that's what we're going to talk about today in our next installment in this series, uh, Through the Lens of Grace. We're going to be looking at what Paul tells us in the book of Romans about suffering and about the Christian way through it. Notice I say through it, not around it, not avoiding it, not explaining it away, but right through it. Jesus meets us there, and on the other side of it, gives us this profound vision of life. If you have a Bible, turn in it with me to the book of Romans. I'm going to be reading from chapter 8, verses 18 through 25, if you'd like to follow along. We're also going to have them up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but of the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Humans want answers. That's who we are. It's part of our uh, condition. In fact, we want answers so badly that even in our leisure time, we make up things where we have to find answers, right? Riddles and Rubik's Cubes. We give ourselves puzzles to try to solve because we love solving things. And that often carries with us into our pain and our suffering. We start to ask questions like, why? Why is this happening to me? Why is this going on? Because we'd like an answer. We'd like a solution, right? And that part of our humanity is a good thing. To ask why suffering happens is a good thing to ask. In fact, this incredible library of texts gives us example after example of that same question. There's a whole ancient book of poetry called the Psalms that gives us all sorts of templates for how we can pose why questions to God. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself from me in times of trouble? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are words that Jesus himself uttered. And so if you're in this room and you have this tendency to question in the middle of your suffering, that's okay. It's not just okay, it's a good thing to do. We get example after example of that. And the Bible does give us some answers as to why suffering happens. For instance, sometimes suffering happens because humans make bad choices. They murder, they steal, they commit adultery, and that affects us, right? That changes our world in some way. Suffering happens because humans make some poor choices. Suffering also happens, though, because there's some spiritual forces at work that don't want life. They want to bring death and destruction and decay instead. And so those forces are at work, pulling us away from the source of life often. But the reality is that there's not a catch-all answer to every why when it comes to suffering. 
There's certain suffering, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you follow God or not, there's certain suffering that we can never quite fully answer. Some suffering we don't get a solution to. We just know that it exists. And if you leave God behind, that's okay. I understand the spiritual journey that pain and suffering can put you on, but leaving God behind doesn't get rid of that question. And it doesn't give an answer either. We all have to deal with this, regardless of where we are on our spiritual journeys. Good things happen to bad people, and bad things happen to good people, and it confuses us all the time. And I think the reason that's really difficult, the reason that that's really hard in the middle of our pain is, is it, it exposes our finitude. It exposes that we as humans don't have a comprehensive picture of the universe, and that bums us out because we want it. We want to know why things happen. We want answers to everything. Suffering and pain expose that we don't have as big an understanding as we'd like. As scholar Kate Bowler puts it, there's no cure for being human. It's part of our condition. We don't have comprehensive vision as to why everything happens in the universe. And Paul, in our passage today, he's shifting our focus from that why question. He's not saying the why question's bad. He knows that scripture gives us uh, a template to ask why questions, but he's shifting now. And he's saying, rather than answering the why question, which sometimes is impossible for us, he wants to answer the question of, what do we do with our pain and suffering? How do we respond to pain and suffering? If it's a universal experience and no one has a catch-all answer, then we better know how to respond well to it, right? And so we're going to look at the Christian response uh, to suffering here. And this is important here. Paul's not trying to explain it. He's not trying to avoid it. He's not trying to shove it under the rug. He's actually taking us right into it. This is crucial for us as Christians. The Christian response to suffering is never one that tries to explain it away, nor does it circumvent suffering or try to avoid it. Christianity goes straight into the suffering we experience and charts a way through it. Jesus is not afraid of the mess that is our human condition. Instead, he walks into it with us. And there's two parts to this Christian response that I think Paul is getting at in the verses we read together. The first part is the groaning that we as Christians do. You notice he used that word a couple different times. In verses 19 through 23, he's clearly naming the painful nature of this suffering. The word he uses for groaning refers to this deep grief of the soul from deep within ourselves, this groaning for the brokenness of the world. And there's a couple different places he says that this happens. He notes first that it happens in creation, in the world around us. That's another crucial part of the Christian story. Many times we tend to think that Christianity is about escapism, getting ourselves out of this world and into an eternal destination where we can rid ourselves of the pain of the earth. But that's not what the Christian story says. We've got to remember that the Christian story starts with a good creation and ends with a restored creation. It does not end with escaping that creation. At the start of things, God made everything good to work together harmoniously. Every little thing had its role to play. And then humans were created as the ambassadors of God, the sons and daughters of God, the partners with God to bring life and flourishing and to continue to cultivate that in creation. And humans at that point decided, you know, I don't really love that definition of life. I don't really love the role that you've given me. I'm going to kind of define it on my own. Good and evil and life, I can figure that out on my own. I don't need God to define that for me. And so we left the source of life. And just like if you... Uh, messed up a cog on a perfectly wound clock, the whole thing started to fall apart. Right? If one little piece of this finely tuned system falls apart, then it's not going to be able to tell time anymore. That's what Paul means when he uses the phrase futility 
to describe creation, that it's in futility. The word means oh, it's not fulfilling its designed purpose anymore. It's no longer able to tell the time if it were a clock. And it's groaning, groaning in the middle of its inability. The ecological destruction that we experience in our world, it's the groaning of our planet for healing to come, for that restored creation. And all we got to do is look around our modern world right now to see abundant evidence of what Paul is talking about, this groaning. Cutting down forests is a common practice for humans today. We are cutting them down at a rapid rate. If deforestation continues at its current rate, within 100 years, according to the academic journal Nature, Earth's rainforests will be gone, entirely gone. That's a habitat for millions of humans and animals. They will just be gone. More than 27% of the world's coral reefs have already been lost, and estimates suggest that if things keep going the way that they are, that could double in the next 50 years. One-fourth of the world's sea creatures thrive because of coral reefs. We get essential medicines and treatments for our bodies from those places. They could be gone soon. Did you guys see this summer? This was wild to me. There was a gas leak in the Gulf of Mexico. The video made the rounds on the internet, and it didn't look real to me. It looked like it was like a, an Avengers bad guy, like emerging from the ocean. Like Thanos has shown up. But I, I have the video because I wanted you guys to see this. It's wild here. In the middle of the ocean, there is this pool of fire. <laughs> what? This is wild. This seems like it's out of a sci-fi movie. Creation is groaning, friends. It is longing for healing to come. And that's true out there in the world around us, but that's also true in us. That's the second part of this groaning, according to Paul. It's in our humanity as well. In each of our own ways, our souls are groaning in the middle of our pain and suffering. We're longing for life to come in a world that is full of death. Maybe for you it's the death of someone near and dear to you. Maybe for you it's the pain of a broken relationship. Maybe for you it's a body that doesn't quite work the way that it should, or a mind that's plagued by depression or anxiety. Friends, Paul is making quite clear here the groaning we are doing in our pain and our suffering and all the things we feel, fear and anger and abandonment and grief, all of that stuff, it's a reminder that something's off about our current state of creation, that something's not quite right here, and that we need to see things healed. Now, again, that doesn't mean the suffering is good or right. Because it reminds us of the good doesn't mean itself is good. Christianity does not glorify or justify the suffering and pain we experience, right? That's not how the world was designed to begin with. Instead, Christianity groans. It mourns the suffering. That's what this practice of lament looks like for us as Christians. There's a whole book in the Old Testament called Lamentations that gives us examples of how to do this well. Lament is an essential part of our lives. Friends, faith in God does not deal with pain by using platitudes, Sometimes, the most faithful thing we can do is to invoke the very God that we cannot see, to call upon the very God that we cannot hear. Lament is not a turning away from God. It's a crying out to God in the midst of our darkness. Groaning is one of the Christian responses to suffering. We long for God to be God in the middle of a broken world. 
And so groaning is essential, and all of us know what it feels like to groan. But oftentimes, in that space, we return to that why question. Why doesn't God show up, right? Why isn't God fixing this right now? Where is God? Why is this not resolved yet? But groaning isn't the end of the story, you guys. Do you notice the analogy that Paul uses in this passage to describe the groaning? He calls them labor pains. He's referring to birth, right? Labor pains are painful in the moment, but they produce new life. They produce something really powerfully good. So Paul is implying here that there's a new birth of life in the middle of this world of death. Groaning doesn't get the last word. There's something else that does. There's hope. So that's the second part of our Christian response to suffering. We have hope. And hope is scattered all throughout this passage. Paul uses it over and over and over. He keeps returning to this, that we've been saved into a life of hope as Christians. And when I hear that, I'm like, oh, that's nice. That sounds really nice, right? Because hope for us oftentimes is equated with wishful thinking, with pie in the sky sort of thinking, right? Oh, I have hope that this might happen, and that's really sweet. But the hope that Paul is getting at here is actually rooted in something. See, real hope is not pie-in-the-sky thinking. Hope, as it is being used here, must involve something in which we hope, something in which we entrust ourselves, and that something must have proved itself worthy. Right? You don't hope that a friend will show up if that friend has routinely let you down before. right? You hope that a friend shows up because you know the character of that friend. I've got a, a quick example that might seem silly to some of you, but it's important to me. I'm a big Green Bay Packers fan. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah, we got some Packers fans. If you're a Bears fan, I'm sorry. We just have dominated you guys for the last couple decades. But that's okay. It's fine. It might reverse at some point. Now, a few weeks ago, the Green Bay Packers played the San Francisco 49ers. And towards the end of the game, the Niners scored a touchdown with 37 seconds left in the game, which put the 49ers up by two points. The Packers had no timeouts left and 37 seconds which doesn't give us a whole lot of time. We have to move the football about 40 to 50 yards to get in position to kick a potentially game-winning field goal. Really slim chances for us to win. ESPN tracks the percentage likelihood that teams will win in this situation. They gave us a between a 15 and 20% chance of winning the game at this point. Really, really slim. If this game was played 100 times, we'd win maybe 20 of them. But I had hope in that moment. And here's why I had hope. There's a guy named Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, who has shown over the course of his career time and again to perform in really, really difficult situations and to bring the Packers back from deficits in the past. He is one of the most reliable quarterbacks we've seen in the NFL. And so sitting there on my couch, I was certainly groaning. I was like, ugh, sucks, right? We're down, it doesn't look great right now. 37 seconds, no timeouts, this doesn't look great. And then they showed a shot of Aaron Rodgers, and I'm like, my man. I got hope. He trots out on the field. He's nice and calm. And two big completions later, we kicked a game-winning field goal. Shocking. And yet, to me, it made sense. I had hope, right? I had hope because in spite of what I saw, I trusted in something that I didn't yet see but knew was real. Hope is a present trust in what we know to be true, independent of what we see around us. 
Hope is a present trust in what we know to be true, in defiance of what we see around us. It's the audacity of faith in the midst of difficulty. And it's reliant because it trusts in the character of the one hoped in, because that character has shown up. It has revealed itself to be a healing one. So the question for us becomes, what do we hope in, right? As much as I love Aaron Rodgers, I wouldn't say to bank your life on the person of Aaron Rodgers. In the midst of a groaning world, in the middle of a world that seemingly only has 37 seconds left on the clock and we have no timeouts, who do we hope in? What do we hope in? The Christian hope is rooted in the one who's already won. The one who's already showed up in the same way Aaron Rodgers had already shown up for me time and again. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus lived the life that humans chose not to live at the beginning in that perfect creation. Jesus lived as a son of God, lived the life that God designed humans to live for. And so he has true life. We can receive true life from him, but we also have to see death conquered. Jesus had to go and not only live true life, but kill death as well. And so he went to the cross, true life taking on true death. And on the other side of that battle, we find that true life wins. Suffering and death don't get the last word. Life and restoration do. Resurrection gets the last word. That's the reality that Paul is getting at when he uses words like adoption and redemption in this passage. Since Jesus lived the true life that we were made for as sons and daughters of God, we can now participate in that true life. We can be adopted into the family of God again. And since Jesus Christ paid the debt of death, we can be redeemed from that same debt in our own lives, both now and into eternity. And so while we might look around our world and see pain and suffering, death and decay, God has changed the story through the person of Jesus. And so in him, the life we were always made for can be experienced. There's a great quote from a guy named William Barclay, who I think puts this well in his commentary on Romans. He says, the Christian is involved in the human situation. Within, he must battle his own human nature. Without, he must live in a world of death and decay. Nonetheless, the Christian does not only live in the world, he also lives in Christ. He does not see only the world, he looks beyond it to God. He does not see only the consequences of man's sin, he sees the power of God's mercy and love. He does not only see 37 seconds on the clock, he sees his quarterback. Therefore, the keynote of the Christian life is always hope and never despair. The Christian waits, not for death, We see things differently as Christians, friends, because we know the one we have hope in. The groaning of creation and the groaning of humanity are restored in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Paul is also ensuring, amen, right? Come on. Paul is also ensuring that we remember in this passage that hope is a present thing. A lot of times we hear words like hope as Christians, and again, we think to the future, we think about what that hope is going to look like in the future. But hope is also present right now in us. It changes our lives right here and right now. Paul expresses this by mentioning the first fruits of the Spirit here. You catch that phrase? It's a weird one for us. We don't really use first fruits in our culture, but it would have been known and understood by his audience at the time. It was this ancient Jewish practice of taking the first fruits of your crop during harvest season and giving them to God. And you give them to God because you know and expect that more is coming. 
that the harvest will be a good one. And so it's a celebratory giving up of this first fruit because you know much more fruit is to come. Paul's saying that in entrusting our lives to Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit, which is true life. We get the real life we were made for, and that's giving us an indication of what is to come. It's a little taste, a little sampler. The hope we have in Christ leads to an experience of real life moving in our midst and in the world right now. That's what life in the church looks like, you guys. That's why we do what we do. This is an embodiment of the life of Christ here and now. And so anytime we experience the life of the Spirit, it's a taste of the life that we're ultimately going to get at the end of things. So when we serve the needy as Christians, it's not just a sweet moral thing to do. It's the present experience of hope for the life that we know is coming in full, where all things are restored. We get a little picture of that right now. When we forgive and love one another, it's not just the right thing that our parents would want us to do. It's the present experience of the hope of the divine in our midst now. It is the lived reality of God's hope. And when we gather together to pray, to care for each other, to eat a meal together tonight, it's not just a social activity. It's the embodiment of the communal sharing of the hope that we have in Jesus. It's a picture of what the big thing is going to look like at the end. And so, yes, we hope for the age to come where God's going to redeem and restore everything that's been broken. And we groan as we wait for that. But that hope is rooted in what we experience about God right now. What we know is true about God here, even in the middle of a broken world. And so hope is not just this wishful thinking. It's something we can know and experience in our midst. You see the power of what Paul is doing here, you guys? With hope, we're shown that the presence of God and the fullness of life can come precisely in the middle of our groanings, right in the middle of our suffering. The Spirit of God does not meet us at the peak of our aptitude, not when we've solved our own problems, but when we realize our own dire need for saving. That's when God shows up. That's when we know and experience his presence. It turns out that the love and presence of God is right there in the middle of the pain. It doesn't mean the pain is good. It means that God goes there, gives us life. That's the whole point of the cross, you guys. That's why the cross exists. That's why we wear it on our shirts and tattoo it on our bodies because it's a reminder that God shows up in the middle of the heaviness, in the middle of the despair, in the middle of the suffering and pain. He shows up and gives us hope to life on the other side. On December 7th, 2011, my dad passed away from pancreatic cancer. I remember the day. I remember my mom calling me into the room. I remember watching his last breaths. And I remember groaning, really deeply groaning. But I also remember something else. I remember a strange, otherworldly sense of God's presence, as if God hugged me right alongside my family members, as if God cried with me right alongside my family. I remember the love of the Spirit of God and the friends and family members who surrounded us, who sat with us, who were silent with us, but who groaned with us. I felt peace in the midst of the most gut-wrenching time of my life. And I can't break that down for you guys. I can't explain it away scientifically. I can't give you a rational answer for why that happens. All I can tell you is what I felt in my soul. All I can tell you is that in the middle of my groaning, I had a profound and present 
hope. And guys, there are some whys that we're never going to get the answer to because we're finite. We don't have comprehensive views of the world. But regardless, we need a way through pain and suffering. We need a way to reckon with it. We need a response. And that's what Jesus offers us. He offers us a way to address pain and death in our midst, not to avoid it, but to lament it. And in the middle of that place, he offers us real, tangible hope. And so if you're groaning today, Jesus is here. He's with you. He's near to you. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed means God is with you. And he has a way through it. A way that gives us life. A way that meets us now and carries us into eternity. That's the way of the Christian, you guys. That's the labor 